Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you during Advent. Advent is one of my favorite seasons um, because without Advent, um, Christmas kind of smacks right into you. If you're like me, um, usually I intend to prepare for Christmas, and um, suddenly I find it's December 23rd, and um, I'm so grateful that the gift I ask for every year for my spouse is that I don't have to buy her a present. Um, because it takes the pressure off, and often I manage to surprise her with one. But the, the, um, the need not to have stress about it is the greatest gift I could have the month before. But having Advent, where for four weeks prior to Christmas, we're invited to stop, um, to pause, uh, to reflect, um, and to pray is actually critical, I think, for us to enter into um, the proper spirit in which we can counter Jesus. And I, I think about this in particular because um, yesterday we bought our Christmas tree. Uh, in New York City, um, they set up little Christmas tree stores out on the sidewalk uh, every couple blocks. And there thankfully is one across the street, which is the only reason we managed to get ourselves there. And the children have been waiting because they, they open up the day after Thanksgiving. And they're like, can we buy a tree today? And we're like, no, you have homework. We, you have to go to sleep. So we said, this weekend, we'll do it. So we bought the tree. Um, we pulled out the ornaments and we decorated the tree. We set up the little manger thing. And then we realized we couldn't find the baby Jesus. And the kids were pretty up. They're like, where's the baby Jesus? And I said, this is why you can't play with this thing. Right, during the other um, 48. But I just thought, right, how, um, how telling we could not find Jesus in all of the chaos, mess, and activity of setting up for Christmas. We lost him in his little manger. And I thought, that's exactly what happens. And if you lose Jesus in the middle of the season, you've lost everything, right? And it, I think this is where this passage is driving us to. It's an odd passage to have during Advent, right? Because this is the season of hope, and the passage that we're looking at begins with a series of woes, right? There's hope the Savior's coming. Woe to you. And here's how I think they fit together. Purple, um, as Anne pointed out, is a, a royal symbol, but it's also a penitential co color if you've grown up in the liturgical tradition. It's, it's a reminder of mourning and of fasting and repentance because the early church and the church for 2,000 years has taken the season prior to the arrival of Christmas, not just in celebration and joy, that comes, but parallel to Lent, it's four weeks to actually remind ourselves of how deeply we need Jesus, how thoroughly we need him to come for the first time to save us, and how desperately we and the society in which we live, rent as it is by war, racial tension, protests, hunger, and death, that we need him to come again. And so the church historically has avoided all of the celebratory songs and colors of Christmas up until Christmas Day, because the goal was to prepare our hearts until we're hungry and sick of the way things are, until we can barely bear the thought of Jesus not being here. And until you're desperate, right, and until your heart is breaking, until you're starving for the good news, it's at that point when the 25th arrives and you gather with friends and family or in their church and somebody says to you, Merry Christmas, the Lord has come. 
all of a sudden you have joy that um, frankly can't be eked out over a month and a half or two of celebrating depending on where you've been shopping recently. So here's the context, right, is um, for the very first time um, in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples finally get a bead on who Jesus is. And when he says, who do people think I am? Finally, right, the disciples respond somewhat appropriately, and Peter says, you are the Messiah. You're not just John the Baptist. You're not just a prior prophet. You are the Messiah. And Jesus goes, excellent. Then, of course, Peter blows it immediately thereafter. And Jesus, but Jesus takes that moment. He says, the Messiah you're looking for has not come to reign and rule with power. He's come to die. And Peter is just like, oh, you know, we, can, we know how to identify who you are. And Jesus rebukes him. And then um, soon after that, Jesus takes the smallest group of the disciples up to the mountain, right, where he's revealed in his glory because God seems to go like, you can name him appropriately. Jesus is giving you the right context. He's come to die and be a ransom for many. And I'm going to show you this is glory. And once again, Peter's like, okay, let's just stay here where it's beautiful and perfect and, Jesus, and everything just disappears because it's clear that's not going to be the way. And so Jesus once again predicts his death, right? He's bookending his glory by saying, I'm going to die. I've come as a ransom and I'm going to die. And that's where you're going to see my glory. And then he sends the 72 out in mission. And last week, um, excuse me, um, Dick reminds us, right, um, that there's an issue of timing, right? You're looking for the time when the harvest is ripe, and I'm increasingly convinced the harvest is always ripe. We just have to go to the right harvest field, right? That um, there's always going to be trouble because not everybody will be responsive, but if you find the right field, right, if you target the right field and you, um, you fulfill your task, which is to find the people of peace and invest in them and watch the gospel spread through their network, which is why increasingly evangelists are saying, we don't need to gather people here, but we go to the places where we would normally go to find the people we would normally interact with and begin to share the gospel in the places where we normally live life. That that's where um, great harvest occurs. And as we all do that collectively, you begin to see people come to faith, right? That in light of who Jesus is, Jesus propels them into mission. And promises that they're going to do remarkable things. And it's in that context that he says, um, in the passage immediately prior to the passage we're looking at today, but some are going to reject you, and you should just be aware of that. And it's as if Jesus, thinking about the people who are going to reject his missionaries, reflects on the reception that he himself has already received. And so, in verse 13... He says, woe to you, Chorazon, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For the, if the miracles that were performed, that have already been performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, right, where Jesus began his ministry, where he's done a lot of things already. Do you think you're going to be lifted up into the skies? Absolutely not. You're going to go down into the pit. Right? Yeah, yikes indeed. What strikes me about how Jesus talks about this is that first, um, he's completely grieved at the hardness of heart that he sees in the people around him. Right? Woe is not um, a word of condemnation. It's a word of sorrow. Right? I'm, um, we don't use the word now. It, it's kind of a little archaic. We might talk about woe is me, but it's usually in a cartoony sort of way. But woe is the deep sense of grief of your heart breaking. 
right? Jesus isn't angered at them, but his heart is being torn into. It's a cry of sorrow. Woe to you. I'm preemptively grieving for you because of this terrible hardness of heart that you have, that even though I've done these miraculous things in your midst, you still refuse to repent and to change and to come to me. Right? Even though I've done these mighty works of power, you aren't responding because this is what the miracles of Jesus were designed to do, right? The miracles were designed to convince people that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. The miracles were preemptive pictures of what it would look like as Jesus comes announcing that the kingdom of God is here because wherever Jesus was, creation was being remade into the way that God intended it, right? Storms are being stilled so that once again, creation is at peace. When there's a a group of people who do not have food, food is miraculously provided. When there's a party, wine begins to flow. Creation begins to demonstrate that it's fruitful, that it's beautiful, and it's harmonious. Wherever Jesus is. The kingdom of God breaks out and the world looks more like how God intended. And he goes, you're seeing what it would look like if God himself were here in your midst, making everything good in you, and you can't see it. Or you refuse to respond to it. It's not just creation being made new, right? But you see restored relationships um, wherever the miracles occur. So whenever Jesus heals a leper, he goes, go tell the priests what happened. Show them your body so you can be brought back into the fellowship of the people who love the Lord. He restores dead children to their parents, right? Ill slaves to their masters. He restores people um, who've been excluded from society beyond the leper, right? The woman who had the hemorrhage for 12 years. And he says, come home. Return into the fellowship of the people who can gather before God and worship him. Wherever Jesus is, these miracles occur because the miracles were a sign of what it would look like if God reigned and ruled actively among us. And he says, I cannot understand how you can't respond to this testimony because the miracles complement the message, right? Everything that Jesus said was reinforced and um, demonstrated by the miracles and the miracles were interpreted by Jesus. It's not just magic. The kingdom of God is here. Now, this is where miracles are still critical for us today, right? Um, Whether you believe in miraculous healings, and I I still believe they occur, they're everyday, ordinary miracles that we experience on a continual basis that are actually testimonies to the way the kingdom of God breaks in. One of the ways, obviously, is conversion. Whenever somebody makes a decision to become a follower of Jesus, what we deeply believe is that somebody who's dead comes to life. Right? The greatest miracle of all is when somebody makes the decision to say, I am leaving the world of darkness and I'm entering the world of light through the power of God rescuing me. I've been made new, even though everything about me is from the old order that will soon pass away. I am being brought to life in a world where I lived was death. I think the miracles continue when the church actually looks like the church. And if you're paying attention to the news at all, um, right, um, the protests related to Ferguson and the death of Eric Garner have, have been huge news. And if you pay attention to social media at all, they've swamped every Christian conversation I've seen recently. And it's essential, I want to argue, that, or I want to propose the church is being given an opportunity to an enact a miracle at this moment. 
whatever you feel, right, regardless of your position on the appropriateness of police action or not, what, how the grand jury decided, what we're hearing right now is an invitation by communities of color to the church to say, for the first time in our history, would we actively declare in word and deed, in action and in prayer, in conversation, that the church is one body and that the church cares about all people in the same way that God cares about all people, right? That if we remain silent in this period, particularly the non-black church, will perpetuate the same silence and omission, the sins of omission that we um, engaged in or failed to engage in during the civil rights movement. And once again, decades from now, people will look and say, where were the evangelicals at that moment? Were they content to worship and pray on their own, or were they willing to enter into the pain? Now, again, whatever you think about the appropriateness of um, the protests, in some cases some of the writing or other things, let me suggest that what we should hear as a church is the cry of pain that underlies that. Anybody who's married knows totally what I mean, right? There are occasions where my wife picks a fight with me that's totally out of proportion to the issue which seems to provoke it. Right, way too intense, way too loud, way too edgy, way too abrasive. And if all I did was say, you know, that's an inappropriate response to what's going on right now. I would have completely missed the opportunity to say, something has triggered a powerful reaction for you. Will you tell me what's going on? Will you allow me to hear your world? And if I'm good and if I choose to listen, what I'll discover, it has nothing or very little to do with the precipitating moment, though there's probably an area of sin in my part there. Oh, there's undoubtedly an area of sin um, there. But it's the days or weeks or occasionally months of sins against her. The small slights, the, right, the um, failure to listen, the failure to love, that over time builds into something which seems so, at, from where I sit, disproportionate to what's actually happening in the moment, that I could be caught off guard, I could condemn the actual action now, or I could see that as an invitation, will you pay attention to why this anger, pain, frustration, or brokenness has built up for so long that it's erupting in this way, right? Anybody who's married or has children knows exactly what this is like. Um, for the church to obsess too much on, is this an appropriate way to respond to this, is asking the wrong question. The church is being invited today to say, what happened? And what has been happening that has led us to this point that's provoked such a deep cry of pain and anger and frustration and despair. And if in all seasons of the world, if during Advent when we cry out and remember the Savior's first coming and our, express our longing for his second, if in this season we fail to engage, then we've completely missed the purpose of what Advent is about for us. It's a penitential season inviting us to be in touch with our longing and the longing of the world for a savior to come. What would the miracle be? What if the church did what the church should do? Walked into the places of deepest pain. Incarnationally made yourself part of a community or uh, in a relationship where you could say, I don't think I understand. Would you explain? And then we listen as if their world, they were actually describing their world, our world that we're a part of. And then minimally began to pray. Perhaps even more began to speak and influence. 
I think that would be a kind of miracle that would provoke the world to see that many people who have no incentive to engage chose to engage, not out of self-interest, but because we believe God is engaged. And that would be a demonstration of what it would look like because I think when God comes, he will bring justice. He'll bring order, he will bring peace. Um, but as we've all experienced, those of us who are followers of Jesus, he usually does it by exposing our sin, our complicity, and our silence. And then from there, he brings wholeness. And if that miracle occurred, I think in part, at least the U.S. would have little excuse before God when they, if they said, I don't ever see you at work. One dramatic example might be in this decade. Well, did you see how my church responded? When for centuries they have not, but now they have. Jesus grieves at their hardness of heart because the miracles went unheeded. And they reject the miracles of Jesus in a way that the pagan cities that were the epitome of evil for the people of Israel at that time, um, if they saw what the people of Israel saw at that time, they would have been moved to repentance, right? Jesus uh, contrasts uh, Chorazan and Bethsaida, which were largely Jewish cities, with Tyre and Sidon, which were judged harshly in the Old Testament, uh, particularly by the later prophets, right? They were... Um, condemned roundly. The language used of Satan in Ezekiel is actually used to, defi uh, to, to describe um, the ruler of Tyre And uh, at one point. It, it, they were just so bad. He goes, look, if those pagan cities would respond to these kind of miracles with sackcloth and ashes, with deep repentance, how about you? And why not you? Woe to you for your failure to do so. My heart breaks that you cannot see and refuse to respond. And one of the questions right, that, that we have to grapple with then is, um, if this kind of hardness of heart breaks God's heart, should it not break our heart as well? <coughs> I want to suggest that um, too often the church is glib when we see people who reject Jesus, or we're incredulous, or we're scornful that they don't see it, but the Savior models for us the right kind of response. My heart breaks for those who don't yet know Jesus. When we see them, we should neither be filled with self-satisfaction that we saw it or anger that they don't, but our hearts should be broken and we should weep for every prominent atheist who denies who Jesus is. Rather than being frustrated at who they are, we should be grieving for who they are not yet. Right? So on college and university campuses where I work, when you meet the antagonistic professor who, is, who delights in demolishing the junior high Sunday school faith that most college students seem to come with, we shouldn't be angry or fearful of him. We should be grieving for him. We should be weeping for her. Because I think the world needs far fewer angry prophets and far more prophets who sob and who weep. In fact, part of what... Um, has been happening around the Ferguson, Eric Garner protests within the church that's responding is that they've repeatedly gone back to the Psalms of Lament and said our first response is not to be angry or frustrated. Our first response is just to grieve. And let's grieve with the people who are grieving. And the Psalms, two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament, which allow you to express who you're, you're weeping over the brokenness of the world and then continue to press and to say, 
out of faith, the Lord is good. What would it be like to pray the kind of prayer that Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, used to pray as he would hold the dying bodies of Korean war orphans uh, during the Korean War, which was, Lord, may my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. That for all of us, as you enter into relationships with broken people and live in a broken world, I found that to be one of the most powerful prayers of all. Let my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. So let me be concerned with the things that you're concerned with. Let me weep over the things that you weep with so that I'd act in the ways that you would act, Lord. Jesus grieves at the hardness of the hearts of these cities, but he also acknowledges that there's judgment in the end for them, right, as he talks about Capernaum, a city that he'd spent much time in and may have been his home base for parts of his ministry. And um, he seems to be suggesting something like, even though you saw a lot of my work and you, if I am indeed the Messiah, you think, well, we're kind of his hometown now, you know. Um, in American politics, if it's your hometown, you get a lot of benefits when somebody comes to power. And he says, do you think you're going to be raised up to the heavens with me? Absolutely not. You're going to go down <coughs> into Hades, the place of the dead. Um, this is a description of judgment, at, at least implied. You will be brought down. <coughs> Excuse me. And I want to suggest that um, we grieve, absolutely, but um, <coughs> the reality of judgment, the insistence that Jesus has that when you don't respond to him and his invitation, you will not be in his presence, actually should be powerfully motivating for us. Because why do we grieve? We grieve that people will actually experience the judgment of God. And if we actually believe that to be true, we would act differently. Um, in 2009, I think, there was a video that started to go around that was quite popular. Um, do all, most of you might know the name Penn Jillette of Penn and Teller. Um, he's, he, they're um, a very well-known um, comedy magician act. Um, for decades, they were on late-night television. Um, they have a perpetual show in Vegas. They're well-known. Um, Penn Jillette's also a very well-known atheist. I, he thinks people who gather on Sunday in these kind of ga gatherings like we're in today are just idiots, frankly. And um, in February of 2009, um, he released a video. <coughs> and um, and um, it was an interesting video. What he said was, you know, um, he was signing autographs after the show, and the show tends to be rather crass, um, very funny and edgy, but um, obnoxious and shocking. And he said this guy was just standing there, and he seemed very polite. Um, and he recognized him because he was the kind of the pro he, he used him in the act, right? He was one of those people that they pick out of the audience, and he had to hold some props. Um, and he said um, as, the, as the autograph line went down, the guy came over to um, Gillette and complimented him on the show and then handed him a Gideon's New Testament that he'd probably obviously taken from the hotel room that he was staying in <laughs> at Vegas. And the guy said, um, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have it. Um, I'm kind of proselytizing. Uh, I'm a businessman. I'm sane. Uh, but he said, he looked at me in the eyes as he was talking to me, and then he gave me this Bible. And then um, Gillette said this amazing thing. He said, I, I don't respect people who don't do this kind of thing. 
right? And he's a well-known atheist. He's he, he pretty aggressively atheist. He goes, um, if you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them about this because it would make it socially awkward, um, <clears throat> how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is a possibility and not to tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and, I, and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point at which I tackle you. And this is a lot more important than that. <coughs> um, and he said, look, this guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize, to give me a Bible, which he had written in it. A very little note, not very personal, just like, I liked your show, and he listed five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch. Now, he said, I know there's no God, and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that. But I'll tell you, he was a very, very, very good man, and that's really important. And with that kind of goodness, it's okay to have that kind of deep disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say, and then the video was over. It struck me how deeply true that was, what he said, though, right? How much do you have to hate someone not to tell them about the best news in the world, about news that could save their life, that could rescue their family, that could literally change the world? We struggle with judgment, right? It feels offensive to our ears because we want to be accepting. I was talking with my six-year-old about different religions. She goes, well, they disagree. That's okay. And she just wandered off. I mean, she's six. Um, but as people who are older than six, that's not an acceptable way to think about reality. And what scripture seems clear about is this. It all turns on who you think Jesus is, doesn't it? If you love Jesus, you're going to allow your hearts to be broken when he's rejected. If you love Jesus, you're going to be offended when he's neglected or he's abused. We all know this because we would do that for any other person we love. When I watch my six-year-old daughter go to school, I am desperate that she's going to find a group of friends. I am so concerned when, like, she's with a group, like, I, every day, like, how was it? How, what did you do with your friends? Because I want her to be accepted, welcomed, and loved by her classroom. Right? And if she came back and said, I have no friends, Papa. No one will talk to me. My heart would break for her. I would weep for her. If somebody slandered my wife or said unkind or untrue things about her, or abused her or damaged her anyway, I would be angered by that, appropriately so. You would question my love for my spouse if I weren't. How much more so right, with Jesus that when he's ignored, why do our hearts not break for that? When he's abused or slandered, he does not receive the glory and honor he's due. Why are we not angered by that? In the end, the primary motivation that scripture talks about for evangelization is not the guilt of the Great Commission or just a general niceness that we have as we can't stop talking. It's actually zeal for the name and the person of Jesus. It's when he's rejected, our hearts begin to break for the lostness of the people who reject him, and we're angered when he doesn't receive the honor and the glory that he's due. In the end, it's zeal for God and Jesus that's our primary motive. Our primary goal is to see him glorified and praised. If that isn't true, then the songs that we sing at worship would ring hollow in their ears and should feel like dust in our mouth. 
we should be able to talk about him and invite others to adore him with the same abandon that you talk about a newborn child in your family. Right? We've all seen, if any of you are on Facebook, the obnoxious numbers of pictures that come out with people who have new children. Because we're so pleased and so proud and so delighted, we want everyone to share in it. How much more so Jesus? We've all watched people who are in a new relationship, and you'd think all they did for the next seven weeks was take pictures of each other and themselves, and they post it incessantly on Facebook. We know, we know you're in a relationship. We know you've gotten married. Thank you for the 400 pictures. They're appropriately delighted about their newlywed spouse. How much more so? With the same freedom, abandon, and lack of shame, should we be able to talk about Jesus? Sure, the rest of us think it's a little obnoxious and over the top, but we go, you know, it's a new baby. They'll get over it. This won't happen with second child number two. <laughs> and with a spouse, eventually you'll wind down to a year ago, to, you know, ten, or 10 years ago today, I married my best friend, whatever the people, right? It'll, but how much more so? That's why, frankly, it's the newest Christians who are our best evangelists on campus. One, they still have non-Christian friends, but second, they have the joy and the abandon. And that's really what we try to do here, right? Is during worship as we gather on Sundays, we try to remind ourselves of the joy of that first moment when we came to know Jesus. It's what we do in small groups as we gather on scripture together and pray and care for one another. We try to remember the deep life-changing experience we had with Jesus. And out of that joy and abandon and lack of shame, We talk about it. Um, what, what's interesting and with which I'll end is how deeply then Jesus says, whatever you do and say, it's as if I had done it with them. Um, Jesus says, look, if they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they're rejecting the father who sent me. But if they listen to you, it's like they heard me themselves. That's how deeply he identifies with you, and that's how deeply he wants you to identify with him. And I want to suggest that should give us great freedom then as we engage in the mission that God sends the 72 on and sends us on in turn. Um, InterVarsity does a summer discipleship program for a month up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and one of the experiences we give the students is for an entire day you do contact evangelism on Mackinac Island, which is a large tourist destination in the Upper Midwest. Now, however you fall at contact evangelism, there's nothing that makes you pray more, get in touch with your fears, and decide how you feel about Jesus than being forced to do it for an afternoon. The problem, of course, is you bring like 150 students to a pretty small island of vacationers, and you largely stay in the public park area, and eventually you start meeting the same people over and over. And so you'll approach people, and they'll be like, I've already been talked to. And I always feel bad for them because they're on vacation. Like, really, one contact evangelism moment would be okay. Seven seems a little obnoxious. So I've always felt like we should hand out a sticker after we've talked to somebody. <laughs> and it should just be this big sticker that basically says, I've already rejected Jesus today. Thank you. <laughs> and that you'd be free. But really, as obnoxious as it would be to put it that way, I've already rejected Jesus today, that's really the point, isn't it? They haven't rejected you, the messenger. What Jesus says is when they reject you, they're really rejecting me. So let me take the embarrassment. Let me take the shame. I mean, hopefully you're not like too awkward beyond the awkwardness of having the conversation or obnoxious. Right? That we could repent over. But if legitimately and honestly they say, I want to have nothing to do with you, then what we say is, 
I'm grieved that you want to have nothing to do with Jesus because it's not about you. It's not about us, right? That we'd be angered at the kind of culture that we live in and the, the perhaps brokenness in their family system that's caused them to say, the church is toxic to me. And that we'd be angered by that because they don't know Jesus. But we wouldn't think it was about us in the end. And that would be incredibly freeing. But if they listen to us, if they listen to our words, if they listen to our lived experience as a community when they come and see people who have no reason to love each other other than they've chosen to out of loyalty to Jesus Christ, if they actually see the power of miracles of lives continually changed of a church that actually engages the social issues of the world when they don't have to but because Jesus invites them to, then they'll hear the voice of God through us. And they'll hear his invitation to come and to follow him. And they'll engage in mission. But in the end, it all turns around who Jesus is to us and to the world. Thankfully for us, last night, we found the little baby Jesus in his manger, in the middle, actually, of the room that we are in, hidden behind a couple boxes and a stray uh, sprig of holly. <laughs> Frankly, he was right where he was supposed to be in his manger in the middle of the room where we were working on this Christmas free project. It's not a big room. It's an apartment in New York. <clears throat> but in the blaze of all of our activity preparing to celebrate Jesus, it was still telling that we lost track of him. And so perhaps it's appropriate then on the second Sunday of Advent that we come to the communion table together to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, not just an excuse for a Merry Christmas, or for my British friends, a Happy Christmas, <clears throat> and um, a chance to celebrate. But he came because he enters a terribly broken world, which remains broken to this day, to bring good news to broken people who remain broken to this day. And so that we pray together as a church and as a country, come, Lord Jesus, come, thou long expended Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom your captive people to your honor and glory. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> we need you, Lord. We need you desperately, and the world needs desperately for us to be so filled and transformed by you that they would see the miracle of new life. And um, whether it's in their broken spiritual life, the deep pain that our world feels and our country feels around race, um, or just the everyday brokenness that we experience in our offices and neighborhoods, our homes, <clears throat> in our communities. Come, Lord Jesus, so people may have life and life to the full. Amen.